Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Hello and welcome to this Library of Mistakes podcast. My name is Russell Napier and I'm the keeper of the Library of Mistakes. What is it? What is this Library of Mistakes? Well, it's a room full of books. Yes, one of those things. We have one in Edinburgh, in Lausanne in Switzerland and Pune in India. The Library of Mistakes is owned by Dadasco, a financial education charity based in Scotland. As well as running the Library of Mistakes, it also runs a course, an online course that you can take called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets. And it's in-person variety, which we run in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the course, see the link to Dadasco in the podcast show notes. Hello and welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm delighted to introduce Edward Chancellor, author of Devil Take the Hindmost, former fund manager with GMO, the man who put together the excellent capital account, capital returns. So he has previous in terms of producing books that we're all interested in. And now he has produced yet another one, The Price of Time. Edward, welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. Nice to be with you, Russell. We have in your book uh, an analysis of people's different thoughts on interest rates over the years, a critique of current thinking about interest rates. Uh, but the one thing, the general thing about the book that really struck me is that the problem with interest rates is they have to do too many things. And the problem with current economic thinking is they're kind of used to do one thing. So could you maybe just as an introduction explain the other things that interest rates have to do as opposed to control inflation? And why you think that's important that we get that back into economics, finance, and, and central banking? Well, um, Jim Grant, who we both know, um, describes interest interest rates as as the the universal price, uh, a price that that affects um, everything directly and indirectly. And as you say, the central bankers tend to view um, the, the short-term rates, the, the policy rates, as they're sometimes called, as just an inflation lever. Uh, but if you, and that, that's quite valid. I mean, one reason I think we can agree that uh, inflation is pretty high at the moment is that interest rates are uh, very low relative to the trailing inflation rate. So I think that, you know, that's a sort of valid one aspect of, of interest. But there are these other functions. Um, first of all, interest is a, an inducement to to lend. I mean, as as Keynes said, you you need interest to stop people hoarding. If if you own something, if you have some capital, uh, and you, and someone wants the use of your capital, they're going to actually require some return uh, in order to um, make you know in order to in order to lend. And I think we've seen that uh, over the last decade. The, the banking system itself, when interest rates came down very low, there was there was this belief that that would encourage the banks to lend. But in fact, the the banks lend by borrowing short and lending long. And if you have a very flat yield curve, if long term rates are very low, there's no real inducement to lend. So that's one aspect. But there are many other aspects. I mean, the interest rate is the is the discount rate used to value financial and other assets. So if you know as as we all 
have studied at your business school or, or in your sort of first lessons in economics or finance, uh, you, you learn how to do a sort of discounted cash flow. Now, if you put uh, if you put if you do a discounted cash flow in a spreadsheet and you run out your cash flows indefinitely into the future and don't apply any discount rate, then you get an infinite valuation. And this was something that was sort of noticed uh, by economists, uh, the early English economists, like the, the founder of political arithmetic, uh, William, Sir William Petty. He, he observed that um, in, in the 17th century. And the, the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises puts it quite nicely. He says that uh, without, a, without an interest rate, without a discount rate, an apple in a hundred years' time is worth the same as an apple today. And that is an absurdity. And I would say that, you know, uh, a lot of the financial absurdities we've seen are coming to, you know, a, a peak during the sort of COVID market mania of sort of 2020, uh, you know, 2020 to 2021, that, you know, in SPACs and cryptocurrencies, meme stocks and so on, uh, a lot of these assets that were fundamentally valueless, if you take the discount rate uh, to, to, to close to zero and pump enough money into the system, you're going to get very highly speculative markets. Uh, so when it comes to the infinite future value of the apple, I think literally it's perish the thought. Uh, it's a thought that needs to perish. The misallocation of capital, that's what permeates the book, that the interest rate also encourages that. And then you quote Donald Cohn in March 2004, governor of the FOMC. It's a quote that I'd missed, but I think it's quite stunning as to how the central bankers tried to use interest rates to distort the allocation of capital, that it was part of their uh, part of the raison d'etre, part of their policy settings. I just wanted to read it uh, and let you comment on the, uh, the consequences of this. So this is Cohn in March 2004. Policy accommodation and the expectation that it will persist is distorting asset prices. Most of this distortion is deliberate and a desirable effect of the stance of policy. We have attempted to lower interest rates below long-term equilibrium rates and to boost asset prices in order to stimulate demand. So this is a central banker saying that actually we're in the job of distorting asset prices and distorting capital allocation. Is that the only revelation that you think in terms of central bankers admitting that the distortion of the allocation of capital is actually part of central banking? Well, yeah, I mean that is a pretty, <laughs> a pretty worrying comment, um, and I, mean, I, I think I cite later um, the uh, one of the head of the uh, Reserve Bank of, of Dallas talking about how the the, the very low interest rates uh, were actually discouraging investment and leading to financial engineering and. I think it was called Fisher, and he, I think he, he, he mentions you know, two companies in his district that uh, were borrowing, uh, cutting investment and, and using the money to buy back shares. So, so I, I, don't, I think it, it, it is very worrying uh, that the central bankers and bear, you know, the cent, what is a central banker but a, sort of, but a, a central planner, uh, that's what they've in effect become. And this is, you know, Russell, point that you make when you go on about um, financial repression and how the state 
you know, comes in to replace uh, uh, when interest rates kept very low, when the state has to come in and, and, and replace the, the, the market um, as the allocator of capital. And, and that, uh, I, I don't think the central bankers knew what they were doing. You and I know that if you, if you um, use interest rates, keep uh, lower interest rates to boost asset prices, it's all very well, but you're bringing returns from the future. And if you bring returns from the future, there will be lower returns for investors going forward. See, there's no overall gain. So I think there's a, a lack of, of, uh, of profound thinking about what the consequences of such actions uh, were. And um, I think now people are coming round to the view, a view that, say, you and I have held for a decade, perhaps two decades, uh, that the central bankers had no business uh, playing around so recklessly with, uh, you know, with this, with this vital, um, this vital you know, e e economic phenomenon, the, the, the rate of interest. So there are no free lunches in the world. There are no free lunches in the Library of Mistakes podcast. So we're, we're going to pretend that you are the central banker. Uh, but first, I want to read a bit from your book about targets, which takes us beyond interest rates into something even bigger. Uh, and it's the following, because I think it's a beautifully written piece. As a result, the use of targets is associated with a variety of adver adverse outcomes, including short-termism, the diversion of resources into bureaucracy, risk aversion, unjustified rewards, and the undermining of institutional culture. Metrics serve to stifle innovation and creativity. They imitate science, but resemble faith. When an institution is guided by some specific target, critical judgment is suspended. In the 1970s, the American social scientist Donald Campbell pointed out that the more any quantitative social indicator is used for social decision-making, the more the subject it will be to corruption pressure and the more apt it will be to distort and corrupt the social processes it is intended to monitor. Historian Jerry Miller, author of The Tyranny of Metrics, uh, adds a corollary to Campbell's law, anything that can be measured and rewarded will be gamed. So our background is in financial markets. Well, we've certainly seen it being gamed. Now the difficult question, what? how do we run central banking to avoid this issue of the tyranny of metrics? The inflation target turned out to have all sorts of problems. What is or what should be the right target for central banking? It, it, it is a, a very difficult question because really the the problem is if you had a if you had a world in which money were a sort of a, a limited a finite object and you, you know that therefore when you were lending your capital you were lending something that was uh, limited there, there would be a sort of natural price for it determined by you know, that the market cost of the loan would be would reflect a genuine supply and demand for for capital um, in the world of central banking, uh, oh, sorry, in the world of well, the world of commercial banking, as you write, Russell, you know, you have what we call, you know, fountain pen money. You can conjure up money from, um, you know, for, for, with a stroke of a pen, and central bankers themselves can conjure up the the base money uh, also with the stroke of a pen. So the there is no um, real restriction. To um, how, how much money can be made. So, and, and given that the interest rate reflects the 
the, the supply and demand for this money, then it, it's it's obviously liable to um, to to be out of whack with some sort of un, unseen, equi, you know, natural or equilibrium level. What what I say in the book is, is you know, people have been talking about the natural rate of interest for you know at least three hundred years, three hundred and fifty years. And I cite John Locke the philosopher talking about it and I say well we may not be able to observe the natural rate of interest it's a sort of artificial construct an ideal con- concept uh, but we know it from its absence so uh, we know you know when credit is growing too quickly when asset prices uh, are, are going through the roof when savings are too low when country, countries are running massive current account deficits these are all indications that the interest rates is probably too low. So, what um, if, given that one doesn't live in an ideal world, uh, the 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 probably the best thing to do is to have a broader set of criteria to consider uh, what the interest rate should be, um, and 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 you'd be looking instead of just focusing very very narrowly on on uh, diversions. Uh, you know the, the the extent to which the uh, trailing inflation rate is moving from your your you know, from the central bankers two percent target. You can look at uh, at a broader measure, of, a broader array of measures. And so Claudio Borio at the Bank for International Settlements, he's been advocating uh, what he calls his financial cycle, which is really just a measurement of credit growth relative to its. Um, its norm and as, and real estate prices. So that's a very simple model. And Borio thinks that simple model is more effective uh, at sort of determining the real sort of underlying capacity of an economy and also better at um, avoiding sort of, you know, these uh, speculative booms and busts that we've been going through. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think Borio, I mean, I think Borio's on the right lines. Most books on the history of finance only have villains, but yours actually has heroes. Uh, and not only that, they're heroes who are still with us, Claudio Barrio and Bill White. So uh, it's good to read a book with some heroes in it. The uh, As you said, the BIS have put together early warning indicators for uh, systemic banking issues. And it is the, the trend growth of, or the, the current growth of debt to GDP relative to, to, to trends. So maybe Barrio is onto something. Uh, I have met central bankers and asked them why they don't do what Claudio Barrio suggests. And I've never received yet a, a good answer, except to say it's too difficult. Uh, that's so, so, but Russell, I, I went to see Borio in, um, in 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 Baal five or six years ago when I was starting out in this project, and 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 Borio said he said they at the IMF they say we 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 listen to Borio but we ignore him. <laughs> so, and, and you know, this comes down to a very sort of narrow-minded dogmatism uh, that that really afflicts the world of you know uh, of, of economics and monetary economics and central banking. And um, as you and I know, written about for you know for decades, this dog, narrow-minded dogmatism is has been responsible for one asset price bubble and credit boom after another. So, you know. Go, you know, go back to you know to the run up to the dot com bubble when you know the Federal Reserve cut interest rates after the hedge fund uh, long term capital management collapsed in what September ninety eight. Uh, then you've got your you've got your spectre bubble 
then the great dot-com bubble. Then, you know, they, they brought interest rates down after the dot-com bubble and you've got your, your credit, your you know, global real estate bubble and your global credit boom. And then, you know, they brought interest rates down even lower. So I, I think, I'm hoping that um, this book will sort of add, you know, will, as they say, add to the conversation. Well, there hasn't really been a conversation <laughs> up until now, but I think that this... If the book's analysis is correct, and I, I got Penguin to sort of market it as the first book of the next crisis, if the if the if the analysis is correct, then the central bankers, uh, you know, will 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 uh, be their, their reputation will be uh, in, in tatters, I think, and there will be a need to to review uh, these inflation targets and the, and the very function of, of, of monetary policy and so forth. Well, there, well, there is, yeah. I, I think if your book's going to do that, it will do it because it lays out in great detail the other consequences of the wrong cost of money. I think we both agree it's the wrong cost of money. And actually, they're to do with politics and society as well. They're not just this asset price manipulation by the Federal Reserve. So I wanted to read a bit. Uh, about concentration in business, which you know I think is is important, and I think you say interest rates lie at the bottom of that. Now that has consequences for democracy apart from anything else. Uh, and if we're to take interest rates seriously, I think that's the thing about your book. It, it points out that there are many consequences beyond inflating asset price bubbles here. So let me uh, let me read this uh, a bit from your book. The merger we have brought about a rise in corporate monopolies, the like of which had not been seen since the Gilded Age of the late nineteenth century. The number of listed U.S. companies halved in the two decades prior to 2016. An academic study found that three quarters of American industry had become significantly more concentrated. As in the late 19th century, low interest rates once played the role in the consolidation of U.S. industry. Economists at the University of Michigan find that price-fixing cartels are more influenced by the level of interest rates than any other factor. Cartels tend to form at times of low interest rates and break up when rates are high. Now, if that's correct, and it's all backed up by academic research, the level of interest rates is, okay, the heresy. Is it too important to be left to central bankers at all? I did, it's, that's a difficult question. The, 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 I, I, I don't really uh, believe that central bankers should be given a narrow mandate and that the politicians should then walk away and deny and disavow any consequence for what's happening, and that's really what's happened, uh, you know, over the course of this century. Um, I think that, um, I th- no, I th- yes, I, th- I think that the uh, politicians are going to have to, our, our, let's call them our political representatives, uh, should take more cognizance of what's of what's going on, um, and and if that means. Uh, you know, ending the, the the formal independence of central banks, um, perhaps that's the way forward. I mean, by the way, Russell, you're you, you're probably aware that you know after the First World War, the the Reichsbank was given uh, constitutional independence from the German state, um, and the um, and then you know, the the right the Reichsbank sort of allowed this great, you know, hyperinflation to take place. And it was only when the German states took into sort of, to have a sort of um, a stabilization policy of, of preventing the, um, the the growth in, in, in the money supply that, that the hyperinflation came to an end. But at the time, the, the, the governor of the Reichsbank, uh, Rudolf 
Havenstein said, no, you're not allowed to do this. I am independent. <laughs> and and, and he, he actually died at his desk on the day of the monetary stabilization. So, I mean, if there's ever been a, a, a sort of warning of the dangers of allowing central bankers to to be independent and not sort of holding them to account, then you know, that probably is the first and best example. Well, it's interesting because there is a book, it's a few years old now, by former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, Paul Tucker, called Unelected Power, in which he refers to the central banks potentially as overmighty citizens. So it shows the which way the wind is blowing in terms of where we are going. Uh, we could be here all day and we're talking about your book, but I wanted to talk a little bit about China because uh, people listening to this will be incredibly interested in the, what's going to happen in China, a country which has, let us just say, has never really dallied with market-determined interest rates. So let me read a little bit. It's about China, but it's about more generally what you get if you don't live in a world of market-determined rates. And actually, in their case, a little bit of financial repression, which is something we might talk about as well. Uh, so here, here, here it is. Capital was misallocated in China on a scale not seen since the heyday of the Soviet Union. Soviet central planners had also operated on con under conditions of financial repression. In the political economy of socialism, Hungarian economist Janos Kornai explained how monetary conditions in communist Russia and its satellites contributed to their economic failure. And, and this is the quote from Kornai, which I think is very illustrative and important. Market coordination had not become predominant in these economies. If the real interest rate is negative for a long period, it is unable to control the allocation of investments and gives false information to decision makers for all the decisions that compare present and future revenues and expenditures. And it seems that the central bankers, and I think probably more general than that, policymakers are determined to give us negative real interest rates for the foreseeable future. So are we now in for a prolonged period of Chinese-style misallocation of capital? Um, well, let, um, just state, let's think about China. Say the, the reason I actually sort of embarked on this book is that I, I had, you know, I had spent a lot of time working on China in the early 2010s. And I thought I, you know, everything seemed so crazy in China. Um, I thought I might write a book about it. And then I sort of came to the realization that, you know, I wasn't a, you know, Chinese historian and it was going to take a lot of time to sort of get up speed on that. And I didn't, I wasn't actually in China. And then I, but then a sort of light bulb went off in my head and I thought, well, actually, uh, as an outsider, I can understand a lot of what's going on in China through the interest rate policy and, and the prevailing, uh, what I call, financial repression with Chinese characteristics. Now, um, the, the history is quite interesting because China is the country that first invented a paper money. It was the first country... Uh, to or to experience uh, very high and hyperinflations, but it's also a country in which uh, the credit system uh, until the twentieth century, um, early twentieth century, and then uh, late late twentieth century, which credit system was was very um, uh, undeveloped, um, and and the 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 view of the of the Chinese Mandarin was that uh, was that, that interest uh, should be controlled, that loans should be made uh, at low interest to favoured parties, and this is something that goes back, you know, to 
back to the sort of era of, of, of the Yuan dynasty, the, the Mongol dynasty of Genghis Khan, of the manipulation of interest and the provision of loans at, at very low interest to favoured parties. And I associate that with uh, the, 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 really the lack of economic development in China over a long period. Um, then you get into the modern period, um, and you have the sort of Deng period of you know, reforms uh, uh, from sort of 1980 going forward, the so-called China miracle. But as you come into this century, you find that the Chinese, having pegged their currency to the dollar, are sort of importing uh, U.S. Uh, easy money because uh, the Fed's, you know, back in 2001 has brought you know, interest rates down to 1%. So the Chinese are importing easy money. They quite like it because that gives them cheap capital uh, to or cheap le- loans uh, to actually uh, to have you know massive investment boom initially uh, directed at exporting uh, up until the financial global financial crisis. But after the financial crisis, you get this uh, what I call you know the world's greatest credit boom uh, in China, the world's greatest. Uh, investment boom uh, and the world's greatest real estate bubble in history. And, and I think all those are linked and you can see that as a massive misallocation of capital. All those are linked to the sort of, you know, the underpinning of that was the financial repression, the very low, uh, low real and nominal rates in China. And in particular, the, the fact that rates were very low relative to um, GDP growth. So you go back to our, our discussion of, you know, what is a real, what is the sort of real, uh, you know, what should the natural rate of interest? One one proxy for that is, you know, really your average trailing nominal GDP growth. And when, when China was growing, you know, sort of, uh, let's say, nominal GDP growth at 15% a year, and interest rates were down at, say, you know, two or three percent, then you can see that there's a huge gap between the sort of proxy for the natural rate and what was actually uh, the prevailing lending rates. So many things that interest tell us. What I thought was interesting is your bit on trust, that interest rates tell us something about trust. And I wanted to discuss that in terms of the structural changes that are underway, maybe even as we speak, rapid political changes underway in the United Kingdom. But anyway, Let me read what you say about interest rates and trust. Uh, And you're citing here Badgett. The problem in Badgett's view was that in many parts of the world, in in, in quotation marks, idea of interest is developed very imperfectly. The fundamental problem was a lack of trust. In the Orient, he surmised, writing in the 19th century after hasten to add, a man might put his money in gold or diamonds or even bury it rather than lend at interest. Uh, I know, you know, during the 17th century, the price of money came down partially because people started lending to corporate bodies, whether they be governments uh, governments or municipalities or maybe even the very first corporations. But lending to kings was a pretty dangerous business because they could get their head cut off in the field of battle and uh, you know, credit quality could deteriorate rather rapidly. So uh, the world is is changing. We are tinkering with some of the laws of property rights in certain jurisdictions. Uh, how important do you think property rights are for interest rates? We, we note uh, high interest rates in Venezuela or Turkey, for instance, and we associate them with high inflation. But is there an element as well at which the lack of trust of government 
lack of inability to put in property rights. Uh, and a change in that might lead us to uh, a waning in those property rights, might also lead us to higher rates of interest. Uh, well, um, you know, I, I write uh, in one chapter, I, I cite the 18th century Italian intellectual Ferdinand Galliani, where he talks about interest as the price of anxiety. He said that all, all lending uh, involves um, a concern that you may not get your capital back, and anything that causes anxiety must be rewarded. Now, another way of looking at that is that the, in, the built into all interest is is a sort of insurance premium, um, and we see that in the you know the credit default swaps market, which is really just an insurance market uh, that replicates the bond, the corporate bond market. So, um, so yes, I think that if you're going to undermine property rights then people will uh, be more reluctant to lend. And as they're more reluctant to lend, they um, would demand a higher premium on their lending. So, in fact, the and this, this is the dangerous thing for, um, you know, for, particularly for Western governments, to start playing around with property rights because it tends to backfire. I mean, you see, look, the, you know, the Boris Johnson's government is sort of falling a, 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 as we speak. Uh, but you know, one of the things you you you've probably been observing is how you know Michael Gove, the 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 late minister for Leveling Up, was 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 playing around with with the rights to you know with with with, with property rights you know with the, with yeah with with the landlord's right to own properties and to rent properties out. So on. now th- these all have you know this is sort of broader picture that set the once governments start playing around. Uh, with, with property rights, they are actually going to affect both asset values and the cost of lending. One of the other great things about the book is not just your words, but you found some wonderful quotes from uh, you know from history about other business cycles, other interest rate cycles, and the consequences. I wanted to, as we draw towards a close, discuss the wonderful phrase "ingenious mendacity," which comes from a quote you have here from Walter Badgett. So let me let me read it and let us then discuss the current levels of ingenious mendacity in our economies. Uh, So budget, again, the good times too of high price almost always engender much fraud. All people are most credulous when they are most happy. And when much money has just been made, when some people are really making it, when most people think they are making it, there is a happy opportunity for ingenious mendacity. So interest rates levels, to the extent that they play into these uh, good times, affect the quality of human behavior, according to, to Badgett, or to put it more prosaically, as Buffett likes to say, it's only when the tide goes out that you discover who's been swimming without a bathing costume. Uh, interest rates and morality, do you think there's a link there, as Badgett says there is? Well, um, you, you, the, you remember J.K. Galbraith also has this concept of what he calls the bezel, the uh, illusory increase in wealth that appears during speculative bubbles. I, I think even if one accepts that the low interest rates and the liquidity encourage the, the asset price bubbles or the, the booms um, and inflate the bezel, um, well, they, they, I think they inflate the bezel because when there's an opportunity <laughs> uh, to, you know, in very speculative markets, the, the, you know, the shysters will come out. And now, now, we've obviously seen that over the last couple of years. You know, the, the SPAC phenomenon, these special purpose acquisition companies were being launched by 
promoters who all they had to do was to raise the money, you know, raise the money in the markets and then take over some speculative venture and automatically had uh, were given a very large stake, these promoters in the company. And then after a relatively short lockup period, they could sell out. So it was a sort of license to print money. Uh, if you know, given those market circumstances, then you've got you know the cryptocurrency world, uh, you know, with you know very high rates of you know lending cryptocurrencies, which looked. I mean, I, I think I'm glad that I made this call because I wrote it. You know, the, I wrote the word sort of 18 months ago. I said, you know, the, these high rates of interest in uh, in the cryptocurrency world look as if they might be signs of a of a sort of Ponzi scheme. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, as you see these cryptos blowing up now, that I think that these these Ponzi schemes are unraveling. So, so yes, if you have, let, let's think of it this way: if you have um, relatively high or, or or just normal rates of interest, you have less speculative markets, less inducement to just make fortunes through speculation, and more of an encouragement to. Uh, for st- slow and steady returns of, of, of investments, so I, th- I think that um, the very low interest rates you know, discourage saving and encourage um, sort of, if, if you will, more speculative and dangerous endeavours. So, in that sense, yeah, I think there is a sort of more moral underpinning. Well, well, we'll finish by looking a little bit into the future. I mean, what shines out of the book is that the, is that a market rate of interest, a correct rate of interest, is the truth around which everything else should really evolve. If I can quote from Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. Can our politicians, our central bankers, can they handle the true rate of interest? And if they can't, what comes next? See, Russell, don't I cite you, (laughs) the great Russell Napier, in uh, in my last chapter, in which I argue that, you know, that... I, I accept your your thesis, don't I? That that the where the position we've got into now with very high levels of debt uh, requires a prolonged period of of financial repression, and in that period of financial repression, states will um, necessarily try and take a bigger role. And I'm you know I'm afraid I think that our job as as analysts and my job as journalists over the next ten years is really going to be analysing. You know the the repression, the role of the states, what's happening in financial markets, and then sort of waiting, you know, for the end point. And and again, I I concur with you that you know that this is we're not very close to the end point. We're just you know what does Churchill say at the beginning? <laughs> it's the beginning of the end, not or the you know not 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 the end. So yeah, we will we'll have to, to wait. I I think on the the upside is that. Um, markets, as they come down, will offer better and genuine investment possibility. You know, possibilities. So it's all very well to you know to buy your you know your Fang stocks or whatever at, at very high multiples and see them going up twenty percent a year, or to buy your meme stocks and see them going up tenfold a year. But these are often illusory profits. Whereas when markets come down and valuations are are reasonable and and very cheap. You can then actually make investments that are sound and that have a decent expected return going forward. So, from the investment perspective, it, it, it's not uh, it's not all, all bad news, I'd say. 
Well, the book is a must read for investors, if only if it was compulsory reading for politicians and central bankers. Uh, I think we might struggle to do that. Uh, all I can say, Edward, thanks for writing it. And good luck over the next 10 years with the missionary work. Uh, I can see you carrying this around various places, trying to convert the unconvertible. Uh, keep up the good work. Keep the faith. It might take 10 to 15 years, but you'll get there eventually. And uh, thanks again for writing such a wonderful book. Thanks, Russell. Bye then. Thanks for listening. And to explore the new Library of Mistakes in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our books and keep up to date on what we're up to, do follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice.